Hello and welcome to Euractiv's AgriFood podcast. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And I'm Natasha Fitt. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's AgriFood team. This week, unfair trade practices, a cop out and a new chapter in EU-US agri-relations. So hello and welcome back to the Euractive Agri-Food podcast. It has been a little while since we've been here, um, so I'm sure all of our loyal listeners really missed our voices last week. And that's because we had this uh, special Capitals newsletter last week, and that was all on the state of play of organic agriculture across 12 different member states. So if you haven't seen that just yet, be sure to go and check it out. But anyway, we're back to our usual scheduling now and uh, and we are here to talk to you this uh, week about the latest goings on in the EU agri-policy. So this week, all eyes were on the COP26 and on the off chance you don't know what I'm talking about, the COP is basically this, this big event where world leaders fly in from all over the place uh, to come and have a chin wag about how to reduce carbon emissions and tackle climate change. Obviously, with time running out for action on climate change, um, its organisers have called this meeting the world's best last chance to get runaway climate change under control. But what was interesting and what hasn't gone amiss this week is uh, is that the COP26 had a, there was a distinct lack of agriculture in the COP26. Um, that's not to say that, that people weren't talking about food at all, because apparently on the menu this week for world leaders was this plant forward, sustainably sourced local UK products. Not sure exactly what that means uh, for the world leaders, for what they were eating. It's so clear, plant forward. Plant forward. I mean... When I think of the UK, I'm thinking of pies, I'm thinking of baked beans. I can't imagine them chowing down on baked beans. I mean, that is plant, you know, <laughs> plant forward. <laughs> I don't know. I... She's talking about her home country. Yeah, just to... uh, yeah. I, mean, I think I think people have got that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So... Do you think they ate Marmite? I know how you feel about Marmite. D- d- don't expose me. <laughs> don't expose me. I hope they did try Marmite. I mean, it's yeah. an absolute... It's a delicacy. Marmite, marmite. I mean, not all, not all of our listeners know what marmite is. It's like um, <laughs> you said, delicacy. Yeah, it's um, delicacy. A, pro- a food product that uh, sold in the UK. Yeah, and, I uh, smuggle a lot of jars not, back every not, time. Not that export. I mean, not super exported in the rest of the world. I don't know and why. that that says a lot of things Everyone's about missed, the Everyone product. Everyone is missing an absolute trick here. Anyway, I've got like seven jars in my cupboard in case anyone wants to try. But back to the cop. Um, so yeah, it was hosted in sunny Glasgow. That means they were chowing down on things like potato, leek, things like that. Um, and there was also, actually, I thought it was quite interesting that um, menu items uh, that people could choose from were also listed with their carbon footprint. Um, there was someone that tweeted this week pointing out that um, a locally sourced bacon sarni, which is another staple of British cuisine, um, actually accounted for less carbon emissions than a plant-based croissant. So yeah, that was... that, that, that's quite nationalist uh, of, uh, of Scottish people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pushing an agenda there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but while um, sustainable food was clearly physically on the table, apparently it didn't make it didn't it didn't move much from the plates. I mean, it wasn't tabled for actual discussion because the COP actually came under a lot of fire for neglecting to focus on agriculture um, as an emitter, but also as part of the solution to climate change. And also not to mention, obviously, it's one of the sectors that, you know, stands most in the firing line of climate change. Um, so not 
a single day of the 10-day schedule was dedicated to food and agriculture. Um, it's not to say the topic didn't come up at all. In fact, US President Joe Biden um, did make the role of the agri-food sector in tackling climate change quite clear. And this is what he had to say in his opening address. We don't just want to innovate in the industrial sector. The agricultural sector also has a vital role to play. As stewards of the land, our farmers belong on the front lines of the climate fight. So what has been going on at the COP when it comes to agriculture? Well, we spoke with IEEP's head of the CAP and Food Programme, that's Harriet Bradley, who is actually there in Glasgow, to hear a little bit more. So I'm at the COP and what I've seen so far includes obviously the methane pledge, which is is based on work spearheaded by the US and the EU that does include uh, reductions in agricultural emissions, including um, but on the on the production and on the consumption side, but that has been quite absent from the the coverage and the talk around the pledge. Indeed, one of the first commitment from the national delegates and uh, negotiator in Glasgow is this uh, methane pledge uh, to cut uh, global methane emissions by at least thirty percent below twenty twenty levels. By 2030, sounds a bit like a farm to fork target. No, mm. we are watching the the farm to forkization of global commitments. So um, the initiative was led by the US and the EU, who gathered nearly uh, 100 countries. I think the exact number is 105, and they all together account for 46 percent of methane emissions. Uh, who's missing? I mean who decided not to join this commitment. Well, a number of countries with high levels of methane emissions, such as uh, China, India, Australia, and uh, Russia. This um, greenhouse gas, okay, uh, short-lived, but it has more heat-trapping power than uh, CO2. Uh, Like it traps 84 times more heat than carbon dioxide. 84 times? Yeah, over a 20-year period. Mm, Yeah. That is potent. Quite potent indeed. And um, why it's interesting, this pledge, because it's the first international political commitment uh, taken on uh, methane. Uh, Why it's interesting for agriculture? Well, uh, agriculture is the the biggest source of uh, methane uh, from human uh, activity. We're talking about uh, methane from enteric fermentation, basically burps from ruminant animals, primarily dairy and beef cattle. Um, okay, I, I, I said that. Now I'm, um, I'm uh, fine. Mm-hmm. And there are some cattle-rich ca- countries in this pledge, like uh, Brazil, uh, Canada, Argentina, uh, New Zealand, and, and of course the US and the EU countries who, who jointly initiated the pledge. Uh, and at the same time, there was a bit of disappointment from uh, environmental campaigners. Uh, I mean, they welcomed this uh, this pledge. It was the first time, as I said. Uh, but it's also true that the pledge focuses on technical measures, uh, such as uh, animal feed supplements. Uh, according to the, the U- United Nations, these animal feed supplements can cut emissions in the sector by 20% a year by 2030. But again, the pledge does not include behavioral measures such as uh, shifting diets or tackling uh, food waste. Uh, 
which according to several NGOs can deliver up to uh, 60 cuts, 60% cuts over the next few decades. So just a reminder, a few weeks ago, the parliament called on the European Commission for a legislative proposal for binding uh, targets on methane emissions as part of the measures to, to uh, tackle climate change. Uh, and, and even in that case was the first time that the parliament uh, or in the European Union uh, was discussed uh, a target for uh, methane emission. But um, let's hear from Harriet what, what, what's on the menu again uh, other than the methane uh, pledge when it comes to agriculture at the COP26. And then there have been many side events on agriculture and food systems transformation and um, these have been, been run by different actors, including FAO and also for farm unions um, and other livestock organisations, for example. And the focus there is very much on uh, efficiency improvements, such, so things such as feed additives. Um, etc. to to reduce methane. There's there's no talk or there's there's an active shying away from from talking about reducing consumption um, and a real rejection of the the need to shift to more plant based diets, um, especially in uh, wealthy countries. So um, the the final thing is that on Saturday there will be the day on nature and within that there is uh, there are sessions on agriculture. So these are official presidency events and there will be a lot of side events. But it is very surprising given the massive impact that um, or the the need for transforming food systems in order to keep within one point five degrees that there's not specific negotiation, um, negotiations dedicated to this topic. And that we we definitely hope to see in the future. Speaking of COP26, uh, the European Commission President uh, Ursula von der Leyen has been quite criticised this week. Uh, there was a reporting from the British newspaper, uh, The Telegraphs, uh, saying that she used a private jet uh, for more than half of her official visit uh, since taking office in December 2019. Mm. And uh, these trips included uh, a 50-kilometer journey between uh, Vienna and Bratislava and, and a trip that would take just over an, one hour uh, by car or uh, train. You know how we can call this scandal, Taj? <laughs> how can we call this scandal, Gerardo? The Wonder Flying Gate. Wonder, yeah. Wonder Flying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. You continue to amaze me. Indeed, indeed, indeed. But what we're talking about the, uh, about this scandal in an agri-food podcast. Uh, Good gosh. question. Good question. Well, so a journalist put, you know, spoke about this uh, during the midday briefing, one of the midday briefings this week. Um, and Chief Commission spokesperson Eric Mamer, um, he was talking about the fact he was talking about the stuff that the commission was doing to reduce its personal carbon footprint um, and also talking about the menu options when world leaders uh, meet. And he actually um, slipped in the fact that President von der Leyen is actually vegetarian, which is kind of interesting. Apparently, the, it, you know, this was actually public news, but I didn't know. Did you, did you know this? I didn't know this, actually. Uh, no. no, I didn't know about this. It's not, no. it's not. I mean, it's public because uh, we actually... Mm, made some research and it, it was actually reported by other media uh, yeah. too in the yeah, past. It's not brand new information, but, but 
It's kind of interesting. I thought it was interesting that he slipped this in when he was talking about this flying controversy. Ah, uh, yeah. There you go again, me thing. No, uh, yeah. it, it's becoming a bit of, uh, not greenwashing stuff, but like, you know, you've traveled a lot by plane this month. Hey, I don't eat meat. Yeah, right. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, it's be, you know, it, it's becoming like a trend, no? Uh, yeah, although- like a offsetting your... Somehow offsetting your what was it a fifty kilometer flight? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, not, the moral uh, not eating a burger. The moral personal ETS, the carbon mm. uh, uh, system. Uh, but you know, in, in our daily life, you no, know, a way to offset the emissions. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Well, at least she's eating her veggies. <laughs> Um, And in other news, this week also saw the entry into force of the EU's groundbreaking unfair trade practices directive. And this was introduced back in 2019 and what was widely seen as a kind of David versus Goliath type fight between the food industry on on one hand and the kind of the little guys on the other, um, aka small farmers and producers. Um, So what is this all about? Well, the idea of the directive is to redress the imbalances in the EU food supply chain created by large operators against trading partners with weak bargaining power. Um, so as I've already said, individual farmers and smallholders, and the idea is to try and protect uh, protect these European farmers. Basically, the aim is to try to put the power back into the hands of producers. So mm. does this by banning certain unfair trading practices imposed unilaterally by one trading partner on another at the EU level, uh, in the agriculture and food supply chain. And this includes things like uh, late payments, uh, last minute order cancellations for perishable food products, uh, unilateral or retroactive changes to contracts, or refusal to commit to written contracts. Now, EU countries were required to transpose the directive, which entered into force, by the way, uh, on Sunday this week of the 1st of November, um, international law by the 1st of May 2021, and then apply it six months later. But the road to implementing this directive has been, I think it's fair to say, a fairly bumpy one. (laughs) Um, It actually resulted in the Commission opening infringement procedures against 12 member states back in July after they failed to transpose uh, the EU uh, rules within the allotted time frame. So where are the EU countries who have transposed the directive at? Well, according to the analysis of the European Commission, uh, most EU countries that have reportedly successfully transposed the directive have actually chosen to go above uh, and, and beyond the minimum protection set out in the UTP rules. And they did this by extending the directive's list of unfair trade practices um, or, or kind of making their prohibition stronger or stricter. And this has also prompted, you know, some stakeholders, uh, industry stakeholders, um, to warn of some potential fragmentation in the single market. Saying, you know, some are, some are doing one thing and some are doing another something stricter somewhere else. This could cause some problems. Other stakeholders took the opportunity to urge other member states to to get a wiggle on, you know, just to to, to speed up in transposing uh, the directive into the national uh, law. And actually, we spoke with uh, the rapporteur on the UTP file, that's Paolo de Castro, um, who actually I spoke to him on the sidelines of a real event. Can you believe it, Gerardo? There were real people there. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, from another world, actually. It's, it felt like an, from another lifetime, yeah. It was very exciting. It was very exciting. But anyway, here's what he had to say. 
try to ask commission to come in agriculture committee yeah. and to say what is the state of play in different member states and the application of the UPP's directive and because the commission has just finished a study in 16 member states uh, and then uh, we have to to analyze this result and try to you know push to have an harmonized application in all the member states uh -huh. and to push the member states who are late, like my country. Yeah. That's incredible because I was rapporteur of the UTP. Yeah. We did everything before anybody and now we are the last country. You know, that, that's, you know, and have you had the chance problems. to read the report that was released last week from the commission? You know, what were your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, Are you yeah. satisfied as a rapporteur to read this report? What was your thoughts on it? We still have a lot of things to do to harmonize because yeah. many member states is going in a way. You know, you have France and Spain who are a lot of uh, a lot of advances if you compare with other member states because they yeah. already have uh, internal legislation before. And we have a lot of members say who are the first applications, like Germany or others. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are many different. But one of the key points that we stress during the debate on the, uh, the variety of UTPs was to create a common ground so the Commission have to take a look at all the member states to, to follow the step. And maybe member states who doesn't work in the right way to understand what is the reason, how taking advantages of the experience of the other member states, mm -hmm. you know, so this exchange of view is very important. It was one of the points that we insist to introduce every every two years. Uh, so I, I, I guess that was a very important result for the food chain. And I hope that, uh, you know, we can go faster and, and in the right way. You know. Get everyone up to speed. Get Italy up to speed as well. Yes, exactly. And this week as well, there's a lot going on this week, actually. I've just, I've just kind of realised as we're listing it all here. Um, but this week also marked an opening of uh, a new chapter, as some are calling it, in EU-US relationships when it comes to agriculture. And what am I talking about here? Well, the US Agricultural Secretary, Tom Vilsack, actually came to Brussels this week. And together with EU Agricultural Commissioner Janusz Wojciechowski, the two of them announced the creation of a new transatlantic collaboration platform of agriculture. And this platform is designed to, uh, to boost knowledge exchange between the two agricultural powerhouses and cooperation. Um, and so the, the two were saying this is also going to promote mutual understanding and trust in efforts for the two of them to work together to address global challenges in terms of sustainability. And this is interesting because... It's, it's, I think it's fair to say, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, Gerardo, that it's no secret that the US and the EU uh, do not see eye to eye, maybe, on the future direction of the agri-food sector. Uh, yeah, the, the, we can say that they have two completely different uh, visions uh, for the future of the sustainability of food systems, in the mm. sense that uh, uh, the US is still um, uh, hovering around the, the concept of... Uh, uh, productivity so sure. the, the uh it's what happened uh, a few weeks ago uh, ahead of the uh food summit un food summit uh where they basically launched this global coalition uh focused on productivity and uh, we know from uh, reporting by uh, the u.s specialized media that vilsack in some in some press uh, conferences have basically um, 
consider this uh, new coalition as something to put, uh, you know, in contraposition to the uh, mm. farm to fork strategy, which is the vision of the European Union, which is more focused on the concept of sustainability. Of course, food security uh, always remain um, an important issue. Uh, it's actually we can say that food security is, is almost. No, it's almost. It's actually in the treaties, in the EU treaties. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I mean it's uh, it's uh, an indirect uh, link, but mm. still there's a link. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's why it's interesting. And uh, and uh, actually, uh, Tash, you were there uh, during this conference. I was. What, what what's your uh, take? What do you perceive like from uh, from the atmosphere around the two? <laughs> I mean, it was clear that the two were here trying to kind of smooth over the cracks that we're talking about here. You know, there was a a lot of rising tensions about the EU sustainability ambitions. Um, The two, um, the two of them, very much emphasised this idea of you know we we have more similarities than differences. You know, we're working together. There was also this idea of yes, we might have different paths, but the the destination's the same. Like the the goal is the same. You know, we're centered around a common sustainability goal. It's like the opposite of what everyone always says, you know, it's focusing on the destination, not the journey. So not how we get there, but that we're all going in the same direction. So that was the kind of the, the vibe, the idea. But Very, very philosophical. No. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. A, a bit like the, the 80s, no? Yeah. The, mm, we are me. the world people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is nice. There's a lot of nice narrative they're talking about collaboration cooperation communication all of this excellent and and obviously you know they also spoke about the fact that this has pretty much been the the first real opportunity in almost a decade they were saying um you know with this new with, with the biden administration for the the respective ministries to work together in a partnership so so yeah interesting but it's true that beneath this kind of spirit of collaboration shall we say <laughs> lay some veiled or to be honest not that veiled warnings over future potential trade barriers and meddling in each other's affairs so um the u.s agricultural secretary tom vilsack was pretty clear that any attempts to impose external production standards on u.s agriculture would not be welcomed you know he was saying that if you impose production standards there's going to be trade barriers it will run afoul of the world trade organization it's going to cause uh, take an economic toll it will stifle development of new technologies he was very clear that he was he was not going to stand for this which is a problem because this external element of the farm to fork strategy i mean it's something that stakeholders are increasingly calling for farmers you know if they're upping their sustainability ambitions here the question how they can be protected from imports that are created with lower standards you know this is the question we keep coming back to um and you know with stakeholders are basically pushing for the EU to apply the same high sustainability standards expected of European farmers to imported products. Um, So I asked um, the commissioner about this. He basically said that he understood the concerns, um, but said it was very much not in the interest of either party to create barriers to trade. And he also, he spoke about this, that this would be the main topic of discussion during the upcoming French presidency um it's also no secret that the french uh i mean well french president emmanuel macron has previously said that there is a real need to rethink eu trade policies uh to include mirror clauses on climate and biodiversity so 
I at think it will time, be interesting to see how this goes. At the same goes. time, in, in France, there's this uh, movement, uh, this political movement who's pushing on this concept of food sovereignty. Sovereignty, yeah, okay, yeah. Mm. Uh, which is a very, very French concept. Uh, mm. This actually was uh, conceived by a famous um, the sovereignty, sovereignty concept, uh, Jean Baudin. But uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's a bit conflicting, let's say. Uh, but still, it's uh, it's always like this when it comes to, um, you know, uh, merging the trade ambitions and the sustainable agricultural ambition. Because, of, of course, I mean, uh, sometimes they're a bit conflicting and there are a lot of, uh, uh, yeah, conflicting <laughs> overlaps, let's say. Mm. So let's see how far the spirit of collaboration goes. <laughs> So that's all from us this week. And this week, the Euractive Agri-Food podcast was produced by Euractive's Agri-Food news team. That's Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foote with the technical support of our podcast producer, Evie Chiori. And you can also find this podcast on all major streaming platforms. That includes Amazon, Apple, Spotify and Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agricultural news from the EU. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. Thanks for listening and see you next week.